So, welcome to the Bailey. This is a show where we go on hiatus for four months due to nihilism. I'm your host, Yasin Masood, and today's topic is schooling. We'll go around and very briefly kind of discuss each person's attachment to schooling and their experience, just as an introduction. Let's start with Kulak. Hi, I'm Kulak Revolt. My attachment to schooling is I used to be a liberal arts major. Um, pretty much had the stereotypical nerd who ha- hated school upbringing through grade school and high school. Lots of lots of stories, lots of reading, um, Game of Thrones in the back of math class. And then got to university and really enjoyed actually re- reading like classical texts like proper primary sources detached from schooling bullshit. So part of the thing that really irks me is as awful as I'd say as a libertarian state education is, it's really irksome for me because it seems to be in many respects worse than, than even the concept state education should say it needs to be. Okay, cool. Uh, Master Thief, let's uh, let's have you introduce yourself and describe your connection to schooling. Hi, uh, I'm Master Thief. Uh, for the past 15 years before my current job and my current move, uh, I worked in the back office of a major research university uh, doing academic support and internal policy work and really seeing a lot of ha- the end product of American education and becoming steadily less and less impressed with it uh, as the years went on. Uh, in my own ac- in my own uh, schooling life, uh, I attended a public school for elementary school, which I don't remember fondly at all, uh, a parochial high school, uh, and then a private college. So I've had a big diversity of experiences, and increasingly I see uh, a lot of the same problems creeping into all this education. I, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with the way Americans educate themselves. Um, I'm kind of the person that if I had the uh, chance to go back in time and kill any one person, it would probably be Horseman. (laughs) Out of everyone, that's who you would pick? Well, if you want to fix American higher education in general, yeah, that that would... (laughs) Yeah, probably Horseman. (laughs) Okay. Neofoss. Uh, I'm Neofoss, and uh, I used to be a elementary school teacher for several years until I discovered by working the the profession that it is the worst profession to have. Also, you're in Sweden. Uh, yeah, I, I live in Sweden. I lived there my entire life. I worked here. And I've heard a lot of rumors on the internet that Sweden is apparently really, really good when it comes to schools and education and inclusion. And I think we are horrible at all of them. So that's low marks for the rest of the world, I suppose. Uh, I, I think that t- teaching is a profession that has a lot of problems. And I think the incentives are fucked up, so they will never get fixed. Um, and I think the only one it really affects is the kids. So I suppose you only really care if you're a kid, because... What else are you supposed to do with the kids? I mean, you can't just let them be home. They would play video games, I suppose. It would be horrible. Don't knock my upbringing. (laughs) (laughs) Tracing. So, I am Tracing Woodgrains, or you can just call me Trace for short. And my experience in education so far, I have 
I'm going to go ahead and one-up Master Thief in terms of diversity of early education experience. I had public schooling, and then I jumped to an online school-homeschool combination, then went back to public schooling, then went to a charter school, then went to a private university, dropped out of that, uh, did some technical training. I'm currently attending online college and have something like 200 college credits and no bachelor's degree under my belt so far. Um, so I have exposure to close to the entire range of, un of education up through the undergraduate level as a student. So do you want to turn this episode into a monologue? Uh, sure, yeah. No, I could, <laughs> I, could, I could monologue on education for hours, <laughs> very angrily. Um, but anyway, I was also a substitute teacher for a few months. Well, I was between some other positions, and it, during that time, uh, went to just about every type of school for at least a few days, tried to get as much diversity as I could between elementary, high school, uh, special education, wherever. Um, and my overarching goal is to go into um, education policy and eventually to start my own school. So I have a lot of that still yet to come but I've been focused on education for a long time and intend to stay focused pretty hard on it. All right. So a rough um, structure of what I have in mind is going over the purpose of schooling, because there is some discussion to be had with regards, you know, learning for its own sake or economic development or whatnot. Uh, we can get into uh, how it works out in the United States. Uh, that lets us dovetail into cultural debates, largely, I mean, the one that comes to mind is textbooks. And then we can talk about systems outside the United States. How's that work? Sure. Sounds good. Okay. So because of the COVID pandemic, schooling is at an interesting direction at, right now. A lot of students have been out of school and they're still kind of debating whether kids are going to go back to school, whether there's going to be in-person classes, whether this uh, Zoom learning paradigm is going to be the permanent fixture of schooling. It also broadly highlights just how dependent families are in the United States on, on the public education system as a form of elaborate childcare in order for them to be able to do their jobs. So it's kind of unleashing or like unearthing these uh, raw implications that come from not having a public education system. There's also, at least what I've noticed is there isn't that much consternation about the kids losing potential because uh, there isn't classes or because cl classes are cut short or something along those lines. At least I haven't encountered that personally. Uh, so we're almost working with a blank slate when it comes to schooling because there is room in my opinion for some significant shifts in how this is brought about primarily because of the pandemic so we can start with talking about what is even the purpose of schooling largely it's been presented as a form of job development program where you go to school you go to college you get certifications you get diplomas in order to be prepared for the workforce it doesn't necessarily, at least in the United States, it doesn't necessarily highlight the desire to learn for learning's sake. There's also a facet of conformity and civic participation where 
when you have broadly the same background, the same structure, the same uh, knowledge pool that helps you become part of a shared national identity. That's one aspect of it. So anyone want to talk about that? Yeah, everyone's got the same knowledge pool. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Let's try to be charitable. I know we're going to shit on public <laughs> education system because we don't have a, a teacher's union rep on this podcast. You know, I, I tried. Actually, I didn't try, but. Yeah, no, I, I'm being a bit too snarky, I suppose. One thing I can add is that um, there are always a lot of educational goals in conflict. And one thing, when I was talking to someone who is a lot more passionate and believing in education, public education as it stands than me, he pointed to three major goals of the education system that are in conflict, which I pointed out none of them directly had to do with learning, and we went back and forth on that. But anyway, the three goals that he highlighted were school for democratic equality as a mechanism for producing capable uh acculturated, we can say, citizens, schooling as a mechanism of social efficiency, the economic one that you were talking about, preparing to have a good job, whatever, and as a method of social mobility and, uh, you could say, just class signaling in general, a way to reinforce or improve your social position, whether by going to a top school or what have you. So how, how is the third one distinguished from the second? Well, social efficiency... Uh, that one would be more just you're preparing to get a job, you're preparing like this teaches you uh, whatever to then become a productive member of society, whereas the social mobility one would be uh, in rational sphere terms, basically just the signaling aspect. The, wow, look at this fancy school you went to. So they blur into each other, but there is a distinct, there is a distinction in that the one is at least nominally centered around building skill and preparing you to actually do things. And the other is purely look at how cool I am because I have done this thing. I'm not sure given recent events that that's actually any of the value of, of it. Mostly I, I, I think Blackie Lawless had it right in the eighties. Um, you know, kids are doing time, their age is their crime. That's mostly just storing, Soaring kids, like in terms of signaling, signaling and building human capital, the cheapest thing you could do and the easiest thing to do, even with the poorest kids, because the army d does it, would be to just like assign an hour's worth of really intensive ex exercise every day, have them doing push ups in the mud, make you could have every single student graduate with six pack abs and the body of gods. And and clearly we don't do that. Like we could have a Grecian program that would just be okay. Every North American is objectively more beautiful and and more <laughs> healthy and and just visually superior to everyone else in the world. And it could be achieved with a couple screamy old men, old men, and the same mandatory attendance. Cool. Like and is that is that clearly your, we don't do that. Is that your utopian vision? For schooling, <laughs> having beautiful 18, 19 year olds come out. I mean, that would be nice. Um, I'm an <laughs> anarchist. I don't want want to have the state enforce that. But if we're going to have the state enforcing people and having the cops working as child catchers, 
we might as well get beautiful 18 year olds out of it like <laughs> like it doesn't strike me as uniquely more horrifying than it than juvenile hall for delinquency or any of the things we currently do. So basically lean into it and become like a shittier version of Sparta. <laughs> <laughs> Our education is system is directly taken from the Prussians. Like if we're going to follow the Prussian model that completely, we might as well get Prussian results while we're at it. As as somebody whose ancestry is from the parts of you know around Germany where Prussia conquered, fuck the Prussians and everything about their system. I I, I was some, being somewhat facetious when I was talking about going back in time and killing Horace Mann, but that's really where he he borrowed a lot of that from. Uh, was was the whole Prussian industrialization standardization? Uh, this is what uh, Ken Robinson was talking about in that video that I posted that he did. That all all this was derived from what the Prussians were doing back in the uh, late nineteenth century: uh, industrialization, standardization, being able to follow orders. The world has moved on so very, very far from that, and yet we're still uh, stuck with the same thing that, you know, students are raw inputs to be transformed into outputs, and you have the workers who are all unionized, and they each do their own little thing, and there's supposed to be this uh, benevolent ruling class of, of uh, principles up above, and there's there's no conception that kids are human beings that they have their own relationships and they have parents and families or anything like that this the system is not designed to take anything into account of that at all i want to give like a i guess like a broad overview of the cynical view of schooling because master thief got into it so the, the cynical view at least in, within the united states is that schooling is largely intended as a as an assembly line to create as much conformity and uniformity as possible the modern addendum to it is that it's largely a jobs program and uh government a form of government largesse towards uh teacher unions because they can gain more members they can gain more funding through uh this apparatus and largely absent from either one is uh, a concrete benefit to the students. They're they're seen as kind of like the input to grease the wheels of this machine that isn't necessarily built with their interests in mind. Is that a good summary of the uncharitable take? That I would I would say that I, I would say that is that is a very fair summary of the uncharitable take. Except I wouldn't exactly say it's it's uncharitable, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> well, we'll just call it uncharitable for now, just uh, in the interest of fairness. I'd call that more charitable because at least signaling like it's not positive gain at a society level, but theoretically it's positive gain at the individual level. You benefit from if someone helped me signal a great deal that I was the best of the best, I would thank them for it. I I don't think the majority of schooling even does the signaling job. Well, I I think pretty much K through through 12 entirely serves as a a daycare prison function. No one at present wants the kid kids having the freedom to be out on the street, so so they've stapled on their their prison design on onto a pre existing system. So to play partial devil's advocate for a moment. Partially devil's advocate, partially because I think I am surprisingly perhaps the least cynical person about school in this group all of a sudden, because I'm hearing all of this and I'm like, well, no, it, it's not that. That is not 
the case. It's gone wrong in a lot of ways, and there are a lot of flaws, but it's not this um, oppressive or even this terribly naive system. It's just something that has reached a locally stable, effective enough minimum that turns out to be really hard to shake loose because of all the competing interests with it. Um, I would say, just from a purely evidence-based look at it, um, we can talk a lot about the problems school has in America, the problems this or that, but at the same time, if you look at the ultimate outputs of the American school system, that is people entering the workforce, uh, the research that comes out of universities, things like that, it is absolutely true that there is a theoretical optimum far above where we are at. It is also true that with this lumbering behemoth of a system that we have cobbled together and built and stuck together with duct tape or whatever, we still have become the most prosperous country um, in history. And I think it does a discredit to systems to assume that they are fully non-functional or to take the fully cynical view when, from an outside view, the American system is the one that every other country is copying. The American system is the one that every other country looks at and says they must be doing something right, so we are going to follow their formula and take their research and run with everything they have done. Well, so two two things. Uh, um, when you say... I don't. I don't think anyone here believes that the American education system is dysfunctional completely. I, there's some benefit, maybe faint, that still uh, leaks through. Uh, and when you say that every other country is copying the American system, I think you need to be more specific because, for me, my own personal experience, which I didn't mention at the at the top, was I I really enjoyed school in my home country before migrating to the United States. And that was an, up until I was 10. And then as soon as I came here, I just thought, what the fuck is going on? Why is this so boring? Why are we learning things that I already, that we already covered when I, in first grade? And that was kind of like my experience throughout uh, my teenage years, middle school to high school. I just hated school. It felt like it was quashing every ounce of curiosity that I had about the world most of the learning that I did manage to scrape by was happened outside of school. I mean, like the most, <laughs> maybe the funniest example is just how much I learned about history from age of empires too. That's far more than whatever I got from actual history class. And, uh, it wasn't until college that I started finally actively enjoying school. And that, uh, I think in large part because I could choose whatever, topic I wanted. I wasn't just stuck uh, with time filler. That's uh, I'd be happy to the, to defend the post-secondary school system insofar as the topics that it presents and um, the ability to really engage re- with your curiosity. I think there's other issues that are unrelated to that, but at least on that point, I'm, I was happy with it. I was very satisfied. Uh, I can't say the same about you know middle school, high school, and whatnot. Uh, and so there is, for me, a very strict difference between those two systems in terms of what to copy that 
that is a pertinent question in terms of what you're actually trying to copy. I was just wondering, what were you learning in grade one um, in your home country that you were learning in later years in in the American system? I can't remember exactly. I think it had to do with fractions. But when it was like it happened within like the first week that I was in fifth grade in the United States, I just said, yo, like, why are we doing this? And they, they quickly put me in like an advanced math uh, track or whatever. It didn't last long. I, I quickly just got bored of everything in school. I, I actually think Tracing's point about copying is wrong. And it's wrong in a very weird way for, at least for middle school, as far as I know. Because it, everyone here is generally thinks that the American system sucks. And American culture sucks. But no one has an explanation for why USA is so much richer than everyone else when their schooling sucks and their culture sucks, but they still have all the best schools because all the best universities in the world are either American or British. So the the Scandinavian condemnation of the American education system, does that also include universities? (sighs) There's a a lot of people that come through the academic circuit that I know of. They are, of course, fond of the quote-unquote free post-secondary education. Of course, you actually take loans and it's covered by taxes. It's not free at all, but quote-unquote free system uh, that allows anyone to get a university education. And they are very against the privatization of schools. In Sweden, there are very few private schools. Well, well, to be fair, the American system as it stands is... Uh, very, it's a it's an, a system where you can easily get get access to a ton of capital. There's no limit to how much loans you can take out for post secondary education, and that is also government funded, in in the sense that it's a semi government entity that handles all these loans and and disperses them. Yeah, in, in Sweden, the loans are made by a branch of government and. I don't actually know exactly right now how tightly coupled they are, but well, that's basically what you have in the United States. Fun- functionally, I don't, I don't see it. Yeah, and everyone still complains about the American system. Just because the systems are identical doesn't mean no one will complain. As someone who spent a, a large part of my uh, career up to now working in higher education, uh, there is a lot of money involved. But when you have so much money being involved in the system, you 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 hit a point of diminishing marginal returns where it's actually uh, not going to anything that that education is supposed to produce. A lot of the money that's that's coming in is going to things like uh, adjunct faculties and non-teaching administrators and diversity initiatives and nicer dorm rooms and student amenities. Very little of it is actually going into into the core functions of education itself. It's like the universities have become these these little. Um, I want they're basically kind of like like theme parks, like Disneyland, like 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 you get a four year <laughs> vacation from reality. I mean that's not far off when like some universities have a lazy river installed. I'd argue that the U.S. that saying America is successful because it has the best schools, is actually probably reversing the causality. So when the British Empire ruled the world, um, Oxford and Cambridge were bar none the best schools in the world. Um, 
if Soviet Russia had won the Cold War, I'm pretty sure um, University of St. Petersburg and University of Moscow would be regarded as the be- best schools in the world. And when China eventually takes over from the U.S., I'm pretty sure University of Shanghai will be regarded as the best school in the world. It's like the driver of school quality is almost certainly where do the elites of the in- international hegemon go as opposed to as opposed to how much how well they t- teach like you can be running the best u- university in the world in Thailand really be teaching the hell out of the Iliad and the Odyssey and all the classical texts but but ultimately what determines where's the best school is going going to be all right where where can I go that the next president might be my roommate or or where am I going to go that I can rub shoulders with the guy who will control the nukes? Hold on. Um, just to push you on that a little bit, why would you say that teaching the Iliad and the Odyssey and all the classical texts, like, why is that your core example of this would a good university make? Because for me, like, those are obviously a compelling subject of study, but I wouldn't point, put that anywhere near my list of these are the things that stand at the core of what good education looks like. It might be helpful to maybe come to an agreement about what, ex- I mean, that's what you're asking, asking tracing, but what exactly, what is it exactly that makes a school quote unquote good? Yeah, that was one of the things you brought up, right? The point of education, which is sort of similar. Right. And I mean, in the United States, their universities live and die by the US World News Report, which I can't even like rattle off exactly what criteria it gives you, but basically anything that puts Harvard and Yale and Columbia up at the top. <laughs> Maybe that's Stanford. a good, that's a good summary. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you see universities respond to, to like kind of uh, make sure that they are positioned highly. Like the, the, Example that I that comes to mind in law school is, for a long time, one of the facets of determining whether a law school is good is the percentage of graduates that are in employment in law. And one of the things that universities started doing is, anyone that is any of their graduates that is unemployed, they would give them a grant, like eighteen thousand dollars a year or something, mm-hmm. uh, so long as they volunteer at a nonprofit that is that is doing legal work. And so they would. Uh, they don't do this anymore, but they used to categorize them as employed just to to raise their rankings uh, um, up until it got you know exposed and swept under the rug. So what exactly do we mean by good university or good school? Yeah, I think we have to split it up by good university, good high school, and good elementary school because they have really different goals. yeah I don't think th- I don't think there's there's any one particular definition of what makes a good, you know, primary school or secondary school or college, because children are by their nature different. They're human beings and we are fabulously and and fiendishly diverse. We have, you know, different interests. We're good at some subjects, not good at others. Uh, Some are more, you know, being pushed by their parents to like, you know, build up social capital to, you know, be the the, the president, the person with the, you know, all the uh, influence or finger on the on the nuclear button or what have you. And some people really don't care about that. Some people want uh, practical skills. Some people uh, need uh, special forms of education because of disabilities. So I, I don't think there's there's any one 
uh, definition of what makes a good school. Uh, I think it, it ultimately comes down to what enables uh, the best chance of flourishing for a particular individual. And that is going to be highly, highly dependent on that individual. So Trace, I want to give you a chance to lay out criteria for what you think makes a good school or university. Yeah. So I agree with Master Thief on a lot of things there. And what I can say is what my criteria for the sort of school or university I would be most interested in. Um, because I think the idea of that, what Master Thief was laying out, I think is right. The idea of a universally good school is basically a fiction, going back to a lot of goals intention, a lot of different things that could be achieved. Anyway, my own focus would be, so you've got the school, what do you spend most of your time there doing? You are in specific classes. So to answer what makes a good school, what makes a good class, what makes a good course of something? And my basic response to that is, a good course is one that you can reliably be put on a path towards expertise, towards real expertise in the given subject that that is trying to teach. So something that is, uh, because it takes so much time and so much effort to become really truly good at something, um, it's an enormous frustration to me how much time is wasted just kind of dabbling in a bunch of random things in a lot of classes. I would say, Basically, the concrete skills, the concrete practice, the concrete growth and knowledge, the measurable stuff that comes out of a class is what I'm looking for as far as making a good class goes. Uh, and as far as what makes a good school, I would say one thing that doesn't make a good school is just having a bunch of really smart people in it. That's just, that's not a good school. That's just, you manage to get a collection of really smart people. Great. A good school is one that understands the capabilities of its student, is conscious of where they're at, where they could be, and the path to get them there, and is effective at in any given subject that the students are interested in or that the students are expected to learn, is has a realistic picture of what they can achieve and is good at allowing them to achieve that. So maybe it's important to point out uh, a distinction because you said a criteria explicitly does not include having a bunch of smart people in there. But if you were evaluating an institution from the standpoint of research capability, which a lot of universities do, then it would make sense to, to use that criteria as, as an advantage, right? Right. Absolutely. Uh, but I don't know that I would call that. Um, uh, I think it's a mistake to, this is one of my pet peeves in education, honestly. I think it's a mistake uh, with things like, say, I'm going to just toss out laws like no child left behind or stuff, to look at inner city schools that are servicing a bunch of poorer and more disadvantaged kids and say, oh, this is a bad school, and schools that just happen to have a lot of very smart people in them and say, oh, this is a good school. I think what you can say is this is a school that, will be capable of producing very good research and such. So if that's your priority, this is a good research institution and such. So yes, if your goal is create a really fantastic research institution, then you should look at something like that. But I don't think you should then say, right, so therefore any school that does not aspire to be a top tier research institution is not a good school. 
I think that's an inaccurate picture, and I think it's pervasive in the way we look at school right now. So for the purpose of this discussion, we should limit our topic to just schooling. We're not talking about research universities or institutions that generate, uh, I don't even know what to call it, academic findings or whatnot. Uh, we're primarily just looking at schooling. So who wants to push back on Tracing Woodgrain's assertions about how to evaluate proper schooling? It it really depends on the age here, I think, when tracing means I mean if, if tracing is talking about university and up, then I then I totally agree. But at some point you actually have to introduce the subjects to people. They actually have become interested in them. And I think that a, a large part of primary school should be to make people have a chance at getting interested in things. Like you don't have math because everyone needs to know how to do fractions in their head or whatever. You have math because some of the people that go to that school will be interested in math or possibly become interested in math, and thus they should have the chance at experiencing that. The point about mastery is is very apt because, I, I don't know about USA, but in Sweden, primary schools have 17 subjects. And I don't think there's a genius alive that can study 17 subjects simultaneously and actually learn anything. But you still have to introduce all those subjects so that the pe the people that will become interested in, in history or in math or in technology or in language or in music or whatever, they will have the chance at experiencing that under a mentor and then be able to choose a specialty later. Maybe high school should already be the specialty instead of university, maybe even earlier like middle school, but you still have to have that that initial chance at learning these subjects and you have to include pretty much the entire spectrum of humanity in there. So in what you're saying, I hear uh, an implied either or between having a broad introduction to a lot of things and diving uh, deep and building mastery within some things. And I don't know that that is an entirely accurate dichotomy. Just looking at, for example... Uh, a lot of subjects that we don't end up teaching in schools, say sports, music, chess, things like that. Um, and you see very, very young kids early on develop incredible proficiency in those fields. And in a lot of cases, they end up all the same vague introductory stuff that the rest of us get. A lot of them just end up picking that same stuff up, and then if they feel like changing course with it. To use a specific example here, uh, Chess, uh, the star of the movie, or the m person the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer was about, Josh Waitzkin, was a chess prodigy who spent really, really dove in deep in chess in his early years. And then by his mid-teenage years, he was like, okay, cool, I'm done with chess. Like, he had pretty much reached whatever plateau he wanted. He was, I think, an international master. He was good basically, not quite grandmaster level, but good. And then he went to Columbia and studied philosophy, and then had a, has an extraordinarily successful career that has nothing to do with chess. And I think that right now, we don't really allow people the opportunity for that sort of early specialization um, in any sort of academic sense. And I think we are missing out for not doing that, even if, and I think we should, 
even if we say, okay, you have, say, a third of the day for this thing that you're really focusing on, and the rest, you, you know, you still need to get a basic grounding and everything else. Um, I don't think it's an either-or. To get a basic grounding, you must not dive deep into something. It seems there's a massive contradiction in the entire idea of public, public schooling that the fact that public schooling teaches something kind of makes it worthless to know because the value of of a skill is that it's un- unique. So Josh Waitzkin level level chess is valuable because very few people can be would be ever be able to beat Josh Josh Waitzkin or or if you learned advanced welding and say a shop class, it's valuable because it's a special specialization that you have and other people don't don't have that that's a something you could take to an employer and say this is something unique i have whereas as soon as as soon as a high school or a public school starts teaching something it becomes damn near worthless worthless like you spend 12 years in school and you might not be employable at minimum wage whereas i pretty much you spend 12 years in any dead end job or any other field and at the end of that you'd be worth something an example of that would be reading and writing which used to be rare but now you can't get a job if you can't read and write because everyone learns to read and write in school which is i suppose funnily enough has been upended now by the migration crisis in large parts of europe where reading and writing are actually explicit now in a lot of uh, job application forms because you can't really be sure that the entire workforce can read and write by now. So, and and this gets us, I think, to the third rail of higher uh, of of education in general uh, in America, which is tracking. Uh, that is, you know, the you you put certain students based on their demonstrated abilities in certain classes with with other uh, students uh, of that same level of ability. This is incredibly, incredibly controversial uh, in America. It's almost it's like, yes, we're 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 almost kind of schizophrenic about it. It's like, we want to make sure that everybody's equal, but at the same time, we want uh, ourselves and our own kids to have, to have these, these, these opportunities to succeed and, and, you know, be the absolute best. And it's, it's that, that sort of duality of, of wanting two completely opposite things of, of both perfect equality uh, and, uh, opportunities to excel uh, for everyone. I, I think that's what's driving a lot of the you know, weirdness in American education today. I mean, I just moved down uh, down here to Texas, and you know, this is I'm I'm in Austin, which is which is a big city, and the big divide that I'm I'm seeing in talking about uh, education here in Austin is making sure that everybody in these schools has a chance to take, you know, advanced placement classes and, you know, have, have all, all this, all the same levels of opportunities, but at the same time, you know, they are, they are, they're, they're pushing back. It's like, you know, how, how do you, do you want to equalize the funding to enable this to happen? Or, and should these, these kids even be in all these advanced placement classes if they don't want to be? And it's, it's just the sense of, of, of people in this one unified system wanting two incompatible things, and I, I think you know the the, the debate over tracking uh, secondary. I was it tracing one grains. He was talking about welding and vocational education, which for some reason in America has a very very 
uh, undeservedly bad reputation. I mean, it's these are the you know vocational skills are very useful things to have. I mean, there are people who do uh, you, who do general contracting work and construction uh, and electrical servicing, and they're making more money than I do, and I'm a lawyer by 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 training. Sweden actually fixed that controversial issue by making it completely illegal to track students. How does that work? That's one reason I hate Sweden's education system. <laughs> you, you are there are very very strict rules on how you are, uh, how you're supposed to treat students and what you're allowed to do, and any sort of special class like a gifted class or a advanced math class is completely ruled out. There are there are workarounds for making classes for the weaker students, catch-up classes and stuff like that. But there is no way you're going to get a gifted program in a Swedish school. So this is getting into um, some culture war red meat. Because, uh, I mean, when, when I have conversations about tracking or streaming or whatever you want to call it, mastery learning is, is another way. Um, the pushback that I get from people that work in the industry is, well, if we allow that, then the the reading between the lines is then black kids are going to be held behind and you're going to have this two-tier system of white slash privileged students that are gaining go, getting ahead while those that require more resources that are disadvantaged in whatever ways are left behind it almost imagines this hostage situation or like a forced marriage where you keep the students together because there is this expected spillover effect where because like the, the, the rich kids are stuck in the school, then they're going to pressure their parents who are going to pressure the local authorities to, to put more resources into the school. And if you get rid of those privileged school uh, students, then you're left with no one that can advocate through that system. The, this was kind of laid bare explicitly during a This American Life episode about I think it was basically like forced desegregation or uh, maybe it was a form of busing where you force students to be uh, in the same school with the idea that it's going to improve maybe not average achievement, but maybe improve disparities in achievement. So this this is going to be a sheep shot, but did that come from union workers? Because that is so far removed from reality. <laughs> <laughs> to be a bit more charitable. I think that most people that work as teachers, especially in primary school, they really care about the weaker students more. Like students that are smart, that are interested, that that can take care of themselves. You can let them take care of themselves. That's the entire idea. No, yes. no, no. But carry on. <laughs> carry on. <laughs> Absolutely not. But carry no, I'm on. I'm not saying that's how it should be. I'm saying that's how it is. I'm saying that most teachers think that it's a blessing that a student can take care of themselves, that if you leave them alone, they don't start flipping tables, they don't start screaming, they just sit and read or whatever. So you don't have to put extra resources for those students. You can take care of the the noisier ones, the weaker ones, the to be a bit mean, the stupider ones. I have very strong opinions here, and I have like 20 directions I want to go at once, but I'll try to constrain myself, which is basically that the whole anti-tracking movement exposes... So, I think Master Thief, again, 
has it dead on, and I'm really appreciating his contributions here, because so often I'm just nodding along. Yeah, Thank you. Yep, yep, and specifically that tension between, I'll call it that tension between equality and excellence is the core tension in education. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good way to put and it. And the anti-tracking movement um, is so entirely destructive just to my idea of what a school is, in the sense of your job is to teach people things they do not know. If you're just lumping a bunch of people together who happen to be the same age, and this is another of the things that drives me absolutely crazy, that ev almost every school in the world is arranged by who's the same age, and detracking stuff, the statement is the only people, the only segregation we allow is age segregation, where you are restricted strictly to the people who happen to be the same size as you. Um, and you are going to learn at the same pace and do the same things as all of those people. Whereas, in, to my mind, any sensible education system along the principles I care about, that is actually teaching people things, would look at a kid who was at the top of the class, who was doing really well, who was speeding along learning everything, and say, okay, clearly this kid does not need to be in this class. Let's move them along. Let's give them something more challenging. Let's push them. Because the dynamic that it creates when you have a bunch of smart kids who can take care of themselves and a bunch of kids who are struggling in the class is that you create one group of kids who learn, okay, I struggle in school. That's what I do. I'm a bad student. It goes too fast for me. I'm slow. It sucks. Everything sucks. And you create another group of students who think, I'm the smartest kid in the world. I can do everything. I don't need to try. I can read in the back of the class. I'm so smart. Look at me. Everything will come naturally. And both of them end up so incredibly misserved by that in the sense that all the ones towards the bottom are perfectly capable of learning at a different pace and depending on what subjects they're passionate about, what subjects they're focused in, they're capable of learning, just not capable of learning at the pace the schools expect, whereas the kids at the top could be doing so much more and pushing so much harder and learning, oh shoot, I'm not actually the smartest person in the world. There is so much yet to learn. But when you lump them all by age, it just tosses all that out the window. So I have a I have a question for you, Trace. Um, yeah. If to me it seems evident that not uh, categorizing students by age is the way to go. That it, that does seem crazy to me that that's the norm. But it is the norm, as you said. Pretty much every school does it. So can you think of a reason why no one has tried to break the mold? It can't just be, you can't blame like international standards on, you know, American teacher unions. There's got to be something else at play that is preventing this from happening. I want to say convenience is a large part and also the technological realities of what was possible when the system was put together that is a large part of it. In the sense of when you are trying to create universal education all of a sudden, you need to batch people, you need to figure out things, and you only have one teacher per 30 students or however much, then you're going to need to figure out some sort of what is a lump that we can put together that can learn all this stuff at the same time. But that, that's how like, you know, old school one room uh, schools used to operate, where it's one teacher, uh, and it's every student from the local town under one roof. And it t to me, you know, I've never taught a class, but it seems plausible, at least, that you could 
task the students different things within the room. That kind of education is is still uh, possible. There are some. There are a lot of school districts in the very very rural parts of the United States where you don't have that kind of critical mass that you need for uh, for you know the the your your average thousand student uh, elementary school, and so you have to have one teacher for 30 students, which may be 30 students from the entire rest of the county because, you know, everything else is just desert and sand. And so you have to have that that teacher going around and, you know, being able to work with people who are not just different grade-wise, but different mastery levels in different subjects. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that there's not quite as much daylight between uh, Neophos and Trace as as there, there otherwise would be. Uh, I, I think... Uh, I think what what Neophos was was stating that you know there, that you know in within a particular classroom you can have uh, one one student who doesn't really need as much help from the teachers, which frees which frees up the the, the teachers to go uh, work with the students who are who are struggling a bit more. In the United States, this view is basically heresy. Um, you have there again. It's it's this. Um, it's this belief that there has to be equality in every resources, which means every student in that class, no matter whether they're uh, at the front or at the back, uh, whether they're leading the rest of the students or whether they're trailing behind, needs to get the exact same amount of time out of their teachers or otherwise uh, the, the children are, are being deprived of something. Um, again, this, that's one of our messed up commitments to equality that's, that's somehow uh, like gone through alchemical transmutation just completely come out wrong. So uh, as, as, much as, as much as I uh, under, understand where Neophos is coming from, uh, I think the particulars of the way America treats equality, which you can see in the debates about tracking, the debates over force busing, uh, which in the United States was um, a, a sort of ill-considered attempt, largely driven by activists and courts and people who had no direct involvement in the public school system themselves, to try to artificially correct these past injustices, um, you know, it's 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 the it's it's this mistaken pursuit of of, of equality that's that's really preempted what Neophos has has been uh, the the kind of system that he teaches in and the kind of system uh, that 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 Trace would like to see. Uh, so basically, I if if you want to talk about culture, um, the culture here is is the problem in the United States. Uh, I was just you note that. I actually got reprimanded several times because I didn't adhere to this system. I gave way too much attention to the leading students. I, w- I was all over bright students. I was reprimanded several times for not spending as much time as I should with the weaker students and instead too much with the brighter students to make school fun for them. Well, so what, what is your solution for the less than bright students? Do you just give up on them? I mean, my personal solution is to give them to the people that really care about them because a lot of my colleagues, <laughs> wonderful <you>. people. <laughs> no, my, yeah. because my colleagues are wonderful people. They really cared about these weaker students. But, like, I had a, I had a kid, and I, I did some he, – he did some IQ tests his parents did, and I tested him myself on a lot of things. And he had about 140 IQ. He was really smart, and he was so bored. He was so fun to work with. You could you could give him abstract math problems, and he would just work on them. So yeah, I spent my free time and probably time I should spend preparing for lessons because I improvise most of them. I spent time making special 
special problems just for him and a few other people at his level. What, which I instead could have spent making the material easier for the weaker students, which the other teachers did. I just I didn't fit in that well. Just to briefly respond to Master Thief's point and uh, say, no, actually, I do want to keep that space open wider. Um, although I very much like Neophos's point here. Basically, I think it is a myth that there are students that need less help than other students in the sense of, are they currently performing academic research at the top of any given field? No. Then they don't need less help. They just need help at a higher level. That there is never a student who, or that there isn't, oh, this student is smart, therefore they should have less instruction, therefore they can take care of themselves. I think it really should just be, this student is smart, this student is capable, therefore they need to be moving on faster, being pushed harder, sort of Ender's Game battle school type. How far can they push and how good can they get if they want to? If they don't want to, whatever. But if they want to, they should never be arbitrarily held back because, oh, they're already learning the stuff and they can take care of themselves. I think that's a product of the push for equality that you're talking about. But I don't think the solution is to recognize that they can take care of themselves, but rather to recognize that they absolutely cannot take care of themselves. Shifting gears, just in the interest of time, what we just discussed is this tension between equality and excellence and how we kind of... With, with schooling, we kind of have to operate under this model of efficiency. So you can't have like individual tutors uh, addressing each individual student's needs. Maybe you can conjure up systems that get close to that, but you're kind of stuck together. And the cynical viewpoint is that it caters to the lowest common denominator. And one way in which that is more apparent in my view is how fights over what ends up on the textbook play out in the United States. There's an article by Tamim Ansari on Edutopia called The Textbook Example of What's Wrong with Education that kind of goes through, from the standpoint of an, a textbook author, how exactly to write a textbook, how to market it, how to make money off of it, and how to pass the gauntlet that is uh, political school board fights. So the classic example is if you get a textbook in Texas versus California, a red state versus a blue state, you'll get very, even if it's from the same author, same edition, same publisher, you'll get very different emphasis on different topics. So the textbook, uh, so, so the Texas example might de-emphasize the role that slavery played in uh, the United States founding. It might talk about uh, how the second amendment explicitly protects the right of people to own firearms, whereas the California textbook might emphasize multicultural aspect of the United States, basically become more stereotypically liberal and bougie in terms of what it likes to highlight. So that, that tends to play out because it's a, it becomes a very thorny and prickly political fight. And the best way to move through it as a publisher is to be as, pl as bland as possible. Yeah, that that was that was the one that that I read when it first came out. The article was in in two thousand four, and that just absolutely rang so true to me. Um, 
I remember my American history textbook and the old, the old joke that, that I, that I learned later on was that in elementary school in the United States, you learn that the civil war is about slavery in high school. You learn, well, it's not quite about slavery. There was economic divisions and there was questions of states rights. Uh, and then when you, when you get, when you get up to college, you finally learn that, yeah, it was all about slavery. Uh, the economic disparities were about slavery. The states rights that were in question was the right to own and keep slaves. Uh, and, and I remember, uh, in taking my, my own, uh, uh, advanced placement history class, uh, American history class in high school and, you know, reading, reading the, the whole scenario as well. It wasn't about slavery. There were all these other causes. And my teacher, he would be using the, the earliest version of Microsoft PowerPoint and saying, this part of the textbook is wrong. Here's some of the stuff that the states that seceded were saying, uh, about slavery. So just, just correcting these, these misapprehensions that were in the textbooks. And after I read this article, I figured out, that the reason that these these textbooks are all telling this this bland sanitized version of history is that they're not written for students they're not written for educators they are written to pass through the gauntlet of politicians and this really started my political awakening to the uh, separation of school and state is that these elected politicians should be nowhere near the process of determining what's in the curriculum or what's in the school book or, or what's in what's even in the daily lesson plan. You're kind of acknowledging that it would be impossible to separate school and state and not have politicians eventually put their finger in the pie of yeah. which textbooks to have. Yeah. Yeah, to take um, a completely similar example from a completely different culture war, the Canadian school system, you know, the emphasis will will essentially swing wildly depending on which province you're in. Um, essentially, if you're in a province that the Liberal Party has controlled for for decades, you'll get you'll get years and years of education about about Pierre Elliott Trudeau and the founding of the country in 1980. And and the Canadian Constitution, and essentially all the crises from 1960 to to 1990, essentially the liberal history of Canada. Whereas if you're in Alberta or or if you're in or if you have a really grumpy old history teacher, you'll learn about the British Empire, fire and Canadian history up to 19, 1945, and the Boer War will be mentioned to you. So exact same, same story in that, in that respect that most, I'd say pretty much all, all countries in the world, it's the education of history is a case of who controls the past controls the future. I think it's correct that you should probably be taught. I mean, not, not a perfectly global, these are the most important points of world history. You should probably split history up in the local and world. Like, in in Norway, I doubt this is taught anywhere else. It's not even taught in the rest of Scandinavia. Do you guys know who Vidkun Quisling is? Yes. What? Vidkun <laughs> Quisling was the guy in Norway that sold out Norway to the Nazis. He, he did an actual state coup, and he took over Norway for the Nazis. And Norwegian history class probably has an entire semester just about him. He's like the biggest villain in their entire history. He is the Norwegian slavery. He is the absolutely worst thing they have ever produced. And he isn't taught, even in Sweden. We don't give a fuck. Because 
he's no always problem. But it does mean that for basically six months, all they are taught is how Quisling took over the government for a couple of months, pretty much. I mean, there's there's plenty of examples across the world. The the other one I, I think about is how um, the massacre of Nanking by the Japanese Imperial Army in, during World War II is virtually unheard of or at least de-emphasized within Japanese public schools. It's seen as like a big faux pas. And I'm sure the same thing happens with the Armenian uh, genocide in Turkish schools where it either didn't happen or it was only the Kurds that uh, that did it. So it seems impossible to disentangle this political influence when you have a public education system. Yeah, I I remember um, my high school education. We had we had an entire like two week or two almost on specifically Louis Arb Louise Arbor's legal campaign against Slobodan Mil- Milosevic and the essentially the process of bringing him to the the hag and and it was entirely party mostly motivated by party politics because louis our our board then became um supreme court justice of Can- canada and still is i'm pretty sure like it it's very very partisan pretty much everywhere yeah and that goes in with that having to be as blonde as possible because if you stray too far from these, then you become culture war material. Uh, it, a, American schools has American history. I don't know if that's one subject or just a large part of the subject history, but it's pretty much not taught at all over here. We don't care about USA. But we have a lot about World War II. And we have, in the six semesters you have in, in middle school, you have one on World War One and two on World War Two, so it's half your entire middle school history class is just those wars. And Swedish textbooks do not mention what Sweden did during World War Two, which was fuck all. <laughs> that is not a point of pride. So you, you you get you get to learn about what happened in Denmark and what happened in Germany and what happened in England and France and USA, but they don't really mention what happened in Sweden because if you start writing about it, you're going to piss some people off and you can't really afford that when you're trying to be as bland as possible and sell to schools of all districts. So, When I was in, in, in elementary school, it, there was tip, typically before, um, before you know, the, the, the middle school years, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, so that would be about maybe between like ages 11 and, 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 and 14, uh, history was, was sort of taught incidentally. And, you know, you, you might spend a year uh, doing stuff about like the Revolutionary War and then jump, you know, ahead to like World War II. Just, just it, it was it was all sort of, you know, an adjunct to language arts and whatever you're saying. When, when, you, when you started getting the formal history curriculum, uh, it was one year of ancient history, which was basically the beginning of time up to the fall of Rome. Uh, and then, oddly enough, one year of American history, which is, you know, the, the founding of America all the way up to the present time. And then you get and then you had like one year of of what's called modern history, which was uh, the fall of Rome up to the up to the present day. And th- there's a there's a lot that has to be covered in, in all in all of those subjects. Uh, the dis- the dispute and, and where, where the where the where the 
blandness part of it is is that yeah everybody everybody wants their own little hobby horse taken care of and everyone wants wants to have wants to have their perspective reflected and then you have you have the you have the the, the Texas fanatics with their version of history and you have the California fanatics with their version of history and those two states they do adoption of textbooks statewide and ev- none of the other states absolutely count which is which is how I as a a a, a school student in Massachusetts ended up with with the with the bland version of of the history textbook that covered everything and nothing well one way to respond to this common denomination problem is to just defect and that's what you see with you know private schooling is one option but also homeschooling and maybe a point of resistance for homeschooling so far has been uh, based on doubt on how effective it could be but now we have a natural experiment with COVID keeping so many people at home and explicitly uh, disrupting live schooling experience in in an actual building supported by government funding. I mean, my, my pundit prediction is that a lot more people are going to be uh, privy or a lot more people are going to be amenable to homeschooling if this keeps up for a while, which looks like it will be. I am here for that. I feel seen. You know, yes. the, 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 the argument for, for, for public school is like, oh, if, if, you, if you don't send your kids to the, to the, to the local public school, they're not going to be socialized. And a lot of the socialization uh, that, I, that I personally went through and I, I, like everybody that I, that I talked to, it's like the socialization was, was, was basically bullying and mistreatment and fear of difference. <laughs> And, that's what that's what and, I was gonna say too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, so it's it's like now finally we we have we have this 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 natural experiment going on where that that the the monolith has fallen and people can choose their own path. And um, I I posted back on on Reddit when there was this this debate going on 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 our little mod, uh, subreddit. Uh, it, it's about um, Albert Hirschman's theory of exit, voice, and loyalty. Uh, now it's like you can you can choose to stay loyal to a a firm or an organization or a state that's declining quality, or you can just walk out and defect. I think the COVID crisis has made exit uh, a lot more real and a lot easier to do. And I think we're gonna. I think Yassine's absolutely right that we're gonna see a lot more people just exiting from the system. There's still gonna be a selection effect because the the option of homeschooling is most attractive to people that are so that have such a strong disagreement with the current zeitgeist and are willing to take the time to stay at home and teach their kids and that tends to be religious people because that's where you see kind of like the greatest divergence like they don't want their kids to learn about evolution uh, they want them to study the Bible more. You're not going to get anywhere near close to that experience in public education. So homeschooling definitely does make a lot more sense for someone of that demographic. Uh, it, I I don't know if it's going to spread uh, or how, I don't know how significant of a barrier that's going to be in terms of limiting its its widespread potential. Oh, I, I I can't I can't see who posted it right now, but there is that whole thing in in San Francisco where they're developing homeschooling pods, and you know maybe maybe if, if whoever could whoever posted that could could jump in on that or. Uh, so it was Standard Order who posted that, but I've been following along with things very much in that line. In addition to all those homeschooling pods and such, um, there are uh, there's 
a small movement emerging of what are called micro-schools, uh, or what are being called micro-schools, which are similar to the idea of homeschooling pods. Essentially, uh, this company, there are a couple of companies, but there's one I'm specifically familiar with called Prenda, will uh, train someone up as a quote-unquote guide, pay them a decent salary, and have them be watching over five to ten kids who are going through a set of online and similar curricula. And it is a, in the vein of that homeschooling co-op idea, but in a way that makes it so much more accessible than just saying one of you needs to quit your job and just teach your kids. It becomes, if you can find a couple of other families who are in a similar boat to you, and you can find one person willing to take this specific job, then you suddenly have this very convenient route to exit that also retains a degree of socialization. Um, and that's an in-between option that I'm very interested in. Yeah, one of one of the things that we'll include in so- show notes is just a, a, a tweet by some random person, Bethany Mandel, who describes kind of the dynamic within um, Bay Area families, specifically families that have the resources and wherewithal to seek out and afford a private tutor, but on a much bigger scale than just one-on-one. So they're trying to figure out kind of like homeschooling pods. Uh, And this is how, this is at least one way that homeschooling can break the tribal barrier and that it becomes very appealing to, to blue tribers living in the Bay Area. I will say that I have some money riding on this. At the end of every school year, Sweden does a mental health check on every student. They have to do a self-reported formulaire on how they're feeling, if they're depressed, if they've been bullied and whatever. And I have made bets with a lot of people that these scores will go up so high because nothing will make you happier than just getting out of fucking school. So, but is Sweden even closing schools right now? I know they're heralded as the... No. I mean, there are some schools that have been closed, but the response has been weird and a lot of them haven't been closed and uh, yeah we've gotten a lot of criticism with that right i don't really care much about it i'm kind of blissful ignorant about it so it's not as clean of a an, of an experiment as you would hope for no i don't think so but i, I still think that every single child that dropped out of school I mean, they will probably have that, you know, initial, like, just if you home with the flu for a week, you'd probably be pro- pretty happy the last couple of days because, hey, you missed school, it's fine. But before the anxiety sets in that, oh, school actually matters so much, now I'll be homeless for the rest of my life. I mean, that's probably going to set in sooner or later before they realize they don't need school. So, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think of a formulation. It's about the tracking uh, I'm not quite sure what my question is on it, but like, how well does tracking actually work in in USA? Like, d- does tracked students actually also continue to do well? Like, do you continue to do well in high school? Do you continue to do well in university? Do you continue to have a good career afterwards? Does tracking actually work? Again, it's 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 basic. It's it's a it's a it's a third rail. It's extremely controversial. So I'm not surprised that there hasn't been a, a lot of research done on it. But it's also hard to disaggregate all the cause and effect because the kids that make it into the gifted 
programs likely have had some resources devoted to them from the get-go. Go ahead and plug a piece of writing of my own here, um, because I, a couple years back, did an adversarial collaboration with someone who uh, strongly disagreed with ability grouping and such, me on the side of, of course it makes a ton of sense, and we spent a really long time diving through all the research on the subject that we could possibly find, looking at all the meta-analyses, going really, really deep into it, deeper than I've honestly gone into any other topic. So um, I've linked that in the show notes, but specifically the conclusion that we tended towards was if you are just splitting people up and then keeping them with the same curriculum, it doesn't really help. If you are modifying the curriculum, um, in particular, if you are regularly changing things up in terms of steadily tracking where they're at and moving them up if they're ready for more and keeping uh, systems with that sort of rolling reevaluation and such, then it can be extremely effective and have, uh, yes, a lot of significant long-term gains as well. Okay. Maybe that's a good place to end. We'll just leave everyone to read the adversarial collaborative by our very own tracing wood grains. I, I just, just as, just as a, a, a final note, I, I think um, Yassine's absolutely right. I think this, uh, this, this crisis, if you look at it the right way, I think there's an opportunity to do uh, a lot of natural experiments on education that haven't been possible uh, since, you know, the 1850s or so in the U S. Absolutely. Constraints breed creativity and the best voice is exit. <laughs> hey, that's that's a good ending. That's point. a good ending. <laughs> <laughs>